Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the August 23rd, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. Today are the Florida and Oklahoma primaries, and New York has a congressional and state senate election, and I think thinking it's largely attributable to all the mapping kerfuffles New York's had. Today, speaking of maps, is the critical race theory forward, that's CRT they say in their title, CRT Forward Tracking Project Director Taifa Alexander at UCLA's law school to bring her anti-CRT mapping project. Last spring on the show, involved Orange County parents zoomed in on their district. Director Alexander will zoom out onto the national effort to identify, track, and analyze local, state, and federal activity aimed at restricting the ability to speak truthfully about race, racism, and systemic racism. In the second segment, UCI ethnographer and anthropologist Roxanne Barzi has raised her creative game during COVID staying in place with some beautiful intentional pieces that she's created and produced, gauging our capacity to deal with the challenges like old climate and COVID and the next skirt. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Taifa Alexander. She is director of the Critical Race Theory Forward Tracking Project at UCLA's School of Law's Critical Race Studies. The subject of this interview is the Anti-CRT Mapping Project, which identifies, tracks, and analyzes local, state, and federal activity that restricts access to this truthful information about critical race theory. So to demonstrate the breadth of the anti-CRT activity across the country, this program, the Forward Tracking Project, provides this comprehensive database of anti-CRT activity all over the levels of government varying types of official actions. Taifa's legal studies, research, and career focused on the advancement of equity, justice, and anti-racism within education, and she's been recognized by both national and state higher education organizations for creating more equitable campus climates across the country. Her published work includes We Can't Breathe, How Top Law Schools Can Resuscitate an Inclusive Climate for Minority and Low-Income Law Students in the Georgetown Journal of Modern Critical Race Perspectives, and Chopped Up and Screwed Hip-Hop from Cultural Expression to a Means of Criminal Enforcement in the Harvard Journal of Sports and Entertainment Law. And in the Huffington Post, she's published A Love Letter to My Unborn Black Daughter. She's working on a chapter for the forthcoming book, Revising the Curriculum and the Co-Curriculum to Engage Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion to Assist Colleges and University in their efforts to incorporate critical race theory and anti-racist pedagogy into multidisciplinary curricula. That's, that's everybody. That's all of us. That's all you. Typha completed her Bachelor's of Science and Legal Studies at St. John's University and her JD at Georgetown University Law and her LLM from UCLA School of Law. Some of you may have heard her last weekend on KPCC with Julia Paskin. She comes to us today from her office in Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Taifa Alexander. 
Well, thank you for having me, Claudia. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. First, this show's listeners, they're pretty clear, as you can be, I guess, and on critical race theory. But would you please offer a brief description that we can carry around, we can have it ready, because it, it's got to be, I mean, the, that sort of distillation, and I know you're asked that, but I'm, right. I'm asking for it too. Right. So critical race theory is both a theory and a practice that one uses legal analyses to analyze how race and racism shape laws, policies, and structures despite civil rights advancement. Two, identifies connections between America's racial history and present-day inequality. And three, in order to advocate for changes in societal systems and structures that have produced racial inequality. So I would also add that CRT does something that few other practices do. It centers the lived experiences of people from historically subordinated groups to tell our own stories of struggle and triumph, of ebbs and flows in an effort to advocate for liberation and the advancement of racial equality. And so that last part isn't necessarily a definition, but it's something I want to lift up because it highlights the utility and transformational capacity of one of CRT's main concepts of narrative in creating knowledge producers from communities that have often been excluded from being recognized as such, which unfortunately is one of the areas that is under attack through the proliferation of anti-CRT activity that we'll discuss today. Right, and in, and it's in that method. It's a method, in a sense, those uh, those narratives right. that have brought me so far. I've got made more inroads in the last six years, and I can hear where, uh-oh, I, everybody's going to come along with us. So, but your answer, it speaks to the point the asymmetry, and I know you know that, but I, I just want to keep calling it out because at the webinar that you were at that UCLA Law School put on, I think it was just last month, it was something I want. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get that question: is how the project is dealing is this asymmetry of the CRT debate, and it's easy to slam CRT. It's hard to explain, and your answer, even if you know you're distilling it to that that answer, it still is much more unwieldy than somebody saying CRT is bad, you know. So <laughs> so that's right. I want to talk to that asymmetry. So it also, it feels like what, you're de- what we're all dealing with is people, more people began to see with their own eyes in the late spring of 2020 with George Floyd and others. We saw with our own eyes. And then what was happening, the dynamic politically, it seemed like the conservative forces were kicking dirt up in people's eyes to obscure what people otherwise clearly could see. Is that is that a way to sort of put that moment in a kind of a, put the debate in the dynamic and perspective? Well, yes, that is a way to put it, Claudia. But I just want to emphasize a few points in saying that there isn't much of a debate here, really, right? Because a debate suggests that there are two equal arguments Correct. On, on both sides. So architects of the CRT disinformation campaign are actually quite clear on what CRT is and what it's not. They've been transparent about, quote, efforts to freeze the brand, unquote, and their strategy to, quote, drive up negative perceptions, quote, end quote, about the theory. And through this strategy, through this CRT disinformation campaign, the term CRT has been co-opted, redefined, and repackaged in a way that displaces the true definition of CRT and its utility in dismantling systemic racism to allow for 
this mischaracterization of not just CRT, but also anti-racist interventions and every other concept and practice that vaguely represents it. And as a result, unfortunately, CRT has unwarrantedly become both the target and the vehicle for attacks on the misdefined theory. And further, through the CRT disinformation campaign, concepts like parents' choice, transparency, excellence in education, integrity, have all been positioned in opposition to the mischaracterization of the theory. And you're right, in the spring and summer of 2020, following the murder of George Floyd and the resulting largest civil rights movement of our time, people began questioning how existing laws, policies, and procedures may be reproducing and further embedding racial inequality. And so these questions, and in some places demands for attention to equality, led to government agencies, educators, and private businesses launching initiatives grounded in anti-racism. And what we really saw in the context of education was this nascent yet powerful movement among teachers to provide our students, our future leaders, with the tools necessary to bring us closer as a nation to realizing our full potential as a multiracial democracy by incorporating instruction and curriculum that centered and amplified voices of people from historically subordinated groups, while also identifying connections between America's racial history and current lived experiences of people from those groups. I stand corrected. I, the debate, it's since words are really, really critical, when I may, I'm going to search for some other way to capture what's happening. Maybe the the asymmetry of the CRT collision, and so it's like. Right, exactly. And it's sort of like being, CRT is being rammed by a, a huge truck from, you know, from behind and right. rammed repeatedly. Exactly. So I want to have everybody understand how the forward tracking project is working here. And so mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an amazing graphic. I want you to tell us about how you're collecting the data, the collaboration. I mean, how are you finding, tracking these to put it down on that extraordinary map? and the, the, right. the tables. Well, none of this um, would be possible without the extraordinary help and assistance of our CRT forward tracking project research assistants. So essentially what happens is our researchers review news articles with terms such as critical race theory and other key terms, right? And so what we do then is scan these articles and identify where anti-CRT measures at the local, state, and federal levels have been introduced formally, and then begin tracking that information as well as substantively analyzing each of the anti-CRT measures. So at this point in time, our researchers have scanned around 30,000 articles in order to create a database as of yesterday, of at least 508 different anti-CRT measures that have been introduced across all levels of government, from Alaska to New Hampshire, and nearly everywhere in between, including here in California, where it's among um, the states in the country with the highest number of enacted anti-CRT measures, only following Virginia, Georgia, and North Carolina. Enacted. So, and you can see on the table and on the map, you can see where the resolutions or the rules, regs, laws, whether they were proposed 
they were uh, it's mm-hmm. it's it's been completed or it was shut down as a that's not it's not yeah. how you put it on the table but that's how I'm putting it. I'm such a <laughs> crass host and so right. you said a 508 measures could that be several measures within one of the districts or are we talking about 508 districts around the country so we're talking about 176 different government entities around the country and we're talking about 508 different instances across the country of anti-CRT measures that have been introduced. Okay. And I just want to know our, and this is, I'll remind people that this is always, it's the local, it's the state, the federal mm-hmm. levels. And we did have right. on this show parents from the Placentia Yorba Linda Unified School District. And I don't know if they were, were they working with you directly? Do they know about you? Because I've been since I learned about you, I've been sending stuff to those guests that were on the show from that district. Well, thank you so much, Claudia. Have um, to. <laughs> we are in the process of uh, reaching out to communities and, and partners that might find this information helpful. But thank you for sharing. Um, we have you know, been tracking this information, especially in California, where there have been nine anti-CRT measures that have been introduced and six that were enacted across five different school boards. And through our data have found that the Placentia Yorba Linda School District has been enacting the most measures of all school districts in California. And so another unique feature made available through the Interactive Tracking Project website allows caretakers of children in Placentia Yorba Linda School District, but in all 49 states where anti-CRT measures have been introduced with access to the full text of the measure itself, as well as details on which type of institution is being targeted, whether we're talking K-12, higher ed, government agencies, the conduct that's being prohibited or required, such as bans in curriculum or books or, or teaching, and other relevant features, right? Is there an enforcement mechanism on here or what specific features does this anti-CRT measure include? And so um, the information is useful for folks like those guests you had on from Placentia Yorba Linda School District in understanding exactly what it is that their school district is bringing up and, and enacting that is impacting thousands of students in this state already. So when I was talking about the opposition to critical race theory, that they're, in a sense, sort of kicking dust and dirt into people's eyes to obscure some of, uh, all, all, I'm going to say, of the nuances. And I'm wondering, uh, and so th- there's a lot of confusion, the educators and parents, everybody, administrators, they're all reading in. But I'm wondering, Taifa, if just mentioning your project would be going against what is enacted in some of those school districts. I mean, is that what it boils down to? They couldn't even talk about your project in a class? Well, each measure is different. Yes, of course. So, for example, in certain school districts, CRT has been banned. But like I expressed earlier in this segment, you know, the redefinition and mischaracterization and co-optation of the term has made it a bit unclear as to what exactly is um, being prohibited. And so this is our value added as the UCLA School of Law Critical Race Studies Program initiative through CRT Forward is to provide context to let people know exactly what their measure is um, okay. prohibiting or requiring. That's um, so, and so useful. It's going to say that 
that's a really lawyerly answer of it depends. Um, <laughs> but a closer evaluation of all of these measures is what's required. And if folks have questions, they can definitely send emails to, to us at trackingcrt.law.ucla.edu. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Taifa Alexander, Director of the CRT Forward Tracking Project at UCLA School of Law's Critical Race Studies. And as I said, it's the, all these levels and this focus you're working on, this teaching from K through 12. So mm-hmm. the, there's different, and the enactments are, some of them are specific to the like K through 8, or is it K through 12? Or is that also obscured in some of those enactments against critical race? That's a great question. It's a bit obscured. What the CRT Forward Tracking Project researchers have done is we said, okay, Placentia Yorba Linda School District goes from kindergarten to 12th grade. So this specific measure impacts those people in those groups. When there's a specific mention of, for example, higher ed or charter institutions or things like that, our tracking project does make note of that information separately. So as you see the project on its website, when we're looking at target institutions, we're looking at K through 12, unless it's otherwise noted elsewhere that there is a specific notation about this bill or this regulation or resolution in particular. And so I want for listeners to be clear, as clear as you can be, Typo, with this, is it's curriculum and it reaches into the libraries on the campuses too, correct? So some of these measures that we have included in our anti-CRT forward tracking project database do include um, libraries that have banned books, as well as libraries within schools, um, but also public libraries as well, yes. So the database is pretty comprehensive as to what we're including. So in addition to K through 12 and libraries that are banning books and school districts that are banning books, we're also looking at these federal government agencies, right? Because the Trump administration executive order 13950, which essentially launched or was the foundation for a lot of these anti-CRT measures, was specifically focused on grantees of the U.S. government, as well as federal agencies. So we're also tracking that information, too. So in addition to K-12 through and higher education, we're also looking at contractors and government agencies. And as far as the content that we're looking at, we are looking at um, what's being restricted in the classroom, um, whether it's a curriculum, whether a school board has decided to withdraw or rescind a general diversity, equity, and inclusion policy or an anti-racism policy because it has come under attack as being critical race theory. We're looking at trainings as well. We're looking at curricular surveillance and student education opt-out, whether caretakers of children are now able to restrict their children from being engaged in any discussion in the classroom that they do not agree with. In particular, we're looking at those CRT um, student education opt-outs. So yeah, we're looking at it all, Claudia, so that people get a better understanding of the full magnitude and scope of these assaults on our children's ability to really ensure we are able to move forward as a multiracial democracy. I want to focus 
in on what you're saying that it's all it the tentacles reach into everything so something might let's say a student just stands up in the classroom or sits and contributes something mm-hmm. that i mean it's not a it's not a formally planned curriculum but when a student opens their mouth and has something to say that it could be considered a, would it be triggering what's been acted that's forbidden in at the school i mean it could it be is it that pervasive of a problem it is it so that's is, yeah. that's so sobering. we have also we have also seen some state governors who have introduced tip lines and things along those lines of which discussions of critical race theory are to be reported and things along those lines so that is certainly an instance in which something like that can happen so the curricular surveillance and just classroom surveillance and and yeah and i know that that kind of surveilling has been a thing in some earlier subjects i'm not going to open up that can of worms but i know that there's <laughs> there's ways that faculty have been sort of checking on their peers their colleagues with students monitoring certain offensive for the in that person's construct um certain kinds of of coverage of certain topics around the world. So it's sort of like this, these, these people are ready with this kind of method. So I mm-hmm. thought it was really interesting, the sort of strategies that you outline at the webinar. And it's, I'm not sure which tab it's on in the, on the website, but you talk about the, how the anti-CRT movement is dealing with the blue state, the red state and the purple state when you've got Dots mm-hmm. of the other color inside the blue, the red, or the purple. If you could, in short right. order, give us an idea of how that strategy changes depending on the political dynamic. That's an awesome question. Thanks, Claudia. My colleague, Dr. Latoya Baldwin-Clark, has developed some interesting findings around the data as it relates to political leanings of states where anti-CRT activity is present. And so she has found that in red, blue, and purple states, measures have been passed at more than 50%, with purple states adopting the most measures at a 74% rate. Further, she's found anti-CRT activity in blue states are at least 75% active um, at the local level, and in red states, anti-CRT activity is most active at the state level. So to put this into context for California, as an example, 100% of all anti-CRT activity in California has been introduced at the local level. And so this is very important because for a very long time, the narrative around the anti-CRT or the assault on critical race theory has been that this is something that only happens, right, in conservative states, and that's all that we need to worry about. But in truth and in all actuality, these anti-CRT activity have crept in and infiltrated what is traditionally considered liberal states, and as a result has limited advocates' ability to proactively organize around these issues and to instead react. So it's important for everyone to understand that this is happening right here and right now. And so the one phenomenon that we've seen, which our researchers have identified, is that where there are anti-CRT measures in place at the state legislative or non-legislative level, 
local entities have not implemented measures. Instead, places like New York, New Jersey, New Mexico, and most clearly California is where there have been no enacted state anti-CRT measures, but local school boards and county-level government officials are picking up that mantle and effectively enacting these measures. So this is a trend and a pattern that CRT forward researchers um, project that we will continue to see over time. And the Placentia Yorba Linda Unified School District is the poster for what you're describing, the blue state, the red dot. So stay with me, folks. This is a, it's the metaphor. It works that when I had previously on a ophthalmology researcher, so who had to deal with stem cells. That's just the specific. So I'm, it doesn't look like I'm creating this from, from nothing. And he was talking <laughs> about stem cell research was permitted in certain states in the early aughts when um, George W. Bush was shutting down any kind of use of stem cells. So that created what this ophthalmology researcher called the Mason-Dixon line of access to really good information and and as a result, you know, some kind of services there. So I wondered if this anti-CRT movement is creating a Mason-Dixon line of educational advantages of a literacy divide, both in engaging content and developing critical thinking. Is this what you're seeing or is your projection will happen? Yeah. Right. So that's a great question. What we are seeing is that this is impacting students' ability to gain access to truthful information about critical race theory, about race, about racism, about systemic racism, and about CRT as a tool to dismantle systemic racism. And so while it is true that there are places in the country that have, as a result, enacted state-level measures And so as a result, the school boards don't really feel like they need to enact measures at the local level. But on the other hand, you also have states where, as I just mentioned, measures aren't being um, introduced at the state level, but are still, like you described, are red dots and blue states that are still impacting children. And so as of yesterday, we realized that based on all the enacted Uh, measures in California, there are around approximately 84,000 students who are being restricted from truthful information about critical race theory. And so I don't know if it's so much a Mason-Dixon line as it is a variation between how many or the percentage or proportion of students that are being impacted, right? Because on a state level, all of the children in the state of Texas in K through 12 public education are limited in their ability to learn about race racism and systemic racism compared to the still alarming number of students in California who can not also do the same thing, right? And so I don't know if it's a Mason-Dixon line as much as it is this enveloping storm of restriction to allowing our children to, you know, really be equipped with the tools to address the most pressing racial and social justice issues of our time. So I don't know if, um, you know, it's a hysterical take, but it was tweeted (laughs) out recently is that we're seeing a full-scale counter-revolution with red states, and you're talking about like red dots uh, in blue states, Mm -hmm. red states banning books and censoring schools, 
that this Ron Brownstein was the one who was quoted saying, we are heading toward a world which is really unseen since the 1950s in America. Is that hysterical or that's just realistic? And that's the world we live in and we need to give everything we've got to protect a non-infantilizing and educationally, intellectually honest school experience for all students. Yeah, I think it really is much of the latter, Claudia, in what you described, and really entrusting our children to learn this information that so deeply impacts them and the world that they will come to inherit one day, right? And so it is uh, concerning as the project director myself, I look at these instances of anti-CRT measures across the country um, and, you know, really interested in figuring out how we might be able to ensure people have the information that they need in order to um, address these this infiltration of anti-CRT measures in our backyards. So, I am concerned, but I'm also hopeful because the information that we've provided through the CRT Forward Tracking Project is what we need in order to equip ourselves with the information necessary to be able to achieve that multiracial democracy that we are so much looking forward to to being able to create. Well, there is so much more for in, in some details, and I really advise listeners to check out the project crtforward.law.ucla.edu and see how it works and monitor changes. I don't know if we can see that sort of like a timeline, but you you can see it on the table mm-hmm. when yeah. it's happening. Mm-hmm. But I'm just thinking of a like a progressive timeline for over you know, over the whole map there. So it's such terrific work, Taifa. Thank you so much for bringing this to us today on Ask a Leader. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So I wanted to thank my guest. My guest was Taifa Alexander, director of the Critical Race Theory Forward Tracking Project at UCLA's School of Law's Critical Race Studies. We'll be right back with UCI professor, artist, filmmaker, and anthropologist, Roxanne Barzi. Don't go away. Extra, extra. Truth is golden. Shines forever. In the 1800s, there was a cowboy named Coloma from a town called Gold Town. Welcome back to the show. Returning to... Ask a Leader is UCI professor Roxanne Barzi, a writer, artist, filmmaker, and anthropologist. I'm offering a brief introduction to set up a, a, a sort of a casual tone for her recent creative works to shine as a model for communicators of all kinds. And I'm mainly thinking of academics. Roxanne Varzi was born in Iran to an American mother and Iranian father, migrated with her family to the U.S. shortly after the Iranian Revolution in 1979. That's some kind of imprinting, folks. Roxanne's first film, Plastic Flowers Never Dies, an experimental documentary about mourning the Iran-Iraq War. Her written work includes Warring Souls, Media, Martyrdom and Youth in Post-Revolution Run, and the award-winning Last Seen Underground, an ethnographic novel of Iran, which was one of the reasons she's been on this show. I think it was, gosh, it was 
it was 11 years ago. And I, it's a, I'm always moving my copy around and I'm taking them as hostess presents when I go out of the country. As well, she's written popular award-winning essays and fiction, which have been published in all over the place. And Sound Project, an art installation known as Sound Walk. Additional works are her sound installation, Whole World Blind, her video installation, Salt and Sublime. We'll talk a little bit about that, I hope, about finding the sublime among the environmental degradation recently at the San Sound Pedro Sound Installation Festival. Her second documentary, Tehran Tourist, it observes Iran through the eyes of a three-year-old. Roxanne is currently working on her first full-length play, Splinters of a Careless Alphabet, during what she aptly calls the COVID-19 period. She continues to write new work. She attended the American University in Cairo, Egypt, Tehran University, University of Washington, and completed her Bachelor's of Arts in International Relations at the American University in Washington, D.C., her Master's and Ph.D. in Social, Cultural, and Anthropology at Columbia. She comes to us today from her home in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Roxanne Varzi. Hi, Claudia. It's great to be back. Well, Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. This interview, ladies and gentlemen, was hatched at my recent encounter with Roxanne when I raised what's <laughs> the ivory tower doing in these times? And so I'd like, we're going to just make an example of Roxanne here. We're gonna, I'd like you to talk about what you're trying to do, how you are, and, and I'm going to uh, label it and you'll hear it. You'll, we're going to have some samples here. At the you know the middle and uh, as a closing, so how are your abundant and cogent creative process a response to the immensity and the immediacy of the public health and the global climate challenges? Wow, <laughs> one can only do so much, but one tries. Well, I think as an anthropologist, um, first and foremost, what I do is observe, and I try to observe with a critical hat and a hat that hopefully has some scientific training to think through some of what's happening right now. But one of the things I think, you know, spending better part of my career, maybe 30 years on religion and government and things like that, what I've seen in the last couple of years is that we can have facts and stats and policy and it just isn't enough to come up against belief. And I think one of the things that's really important is how we put our data out, how we make it actionable, how we present what we know about the world. I think that's really important. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do is get these observations or ideas or actions out there in the world in such a way that makes sense to people. And, and, and some of it's just fun. <laughs> well, it's a real example of putting creativity and clarity to move minds, to make minds, make people mobilize. So I guess I want for you just to speak briefly that all fields, all academic fields are in a position to create messages, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we should be doing. I think, um, I, you know, I, I teach the dissertation writing class and I teach PhD students methodology. And I think the most important thing, and I think one of the saddest things is that academics do amazing work. You know, anthropologists are in the field for years. We spend years writing and then very few people end up reading 
and engaging um, what we've spent so much time learning and thinking about. And so I think it's really, really important to try to reach a wider audience. And the sound work that I just had open in Berlin a couple of weeks ago, the gallerist told me the, the best thing for him was showing up every day and having conversations with people about the sound work who showed up. And those are people who are just, you know, average people walking through Berlin or people who want to come to the sound gallery, it was, you know, it was presented through a megaphone outside of the gallery. <laughs> so I'm sure it, like, you know, attracted people who weren't necessarily interested in going to a gallery on a Sunday. But these are the kinds of ways that I think are important to get our data out there. I think we owe it to the people that we've worked with ethnographically, to the funding organizations, <laughs> to our institutions, to our students, to, to get things out in such a way that people can engage it and really think about it. I think we need to be a little bit more provocative. Well, provocative and tight, tight. And we're, we're, you're going yeah. to hear, you're going to get an example. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is UCI professor Roxanne Varzi, a writer, an artist, a filmmaker, and anthropologist talking about the creative process. So with Wing 623, and just tell us exactly what the number 623 means, that we're, and we're going to play a sample oh. shortly. <laughs> No, that was, Claudia, that's the date on my MP3 that I sent you. Oh, okay. Let's hear <laughs> the whole sample. title is No Wings to Fly to God, which comes from Shakespeare. And it's also a play on um, this idea of birds aren't real and Phaedrus and Plato's idea that wings are the most divine possibility in order to reach the divine. So I'm really playing around a lot with birds these days and um, conspiracy theories and belief and my sound project and my video installations are all about um, how science and religion are in this interesting tango right now. It yeah. happen in, in different places in the world in different periods. And I am I'm going to say this. You've put navel gazing, siloed ventures and bystand. You've put you've called them out with what I call <laughs> elegant ferocity and i congratulate them we're going to now i'm going to start with the beginning of wings and we're not going to hear all of it right now but we're going to sit back and listen to some and i believe i'll try to close the show out i don't know how much time we're gonna have at the end so people can see all of the poetry and the power of this kind of project let's just have a listen now to wings by roxanne barzi wednesday march 18 2020 Thursday, March 19, 2020. One hand raised to heaven, one hand grounded toward the earth. We have no wings to fly to God, no wings to fly to God. A wing being the soul sings away its suffocation. Bird's breath is song, silence, a warning sign. We will not be silenced, we will sing. We stop singing. We can't breathe. Police knees on necks, ventilators down throats, crystal virus web the lungs like shattered glass on x-rays. Humans can't breathe because humans won't sing. We have no wings to fly to God. Lucifer falls to earth and the cone spirals down, down, down. And there are earthquakes, landslides, the desert scorches and the sand burns. Delta, Zeta, Katrina. They shape the path for a difficult descent from which there are no wings to fly to God. No hiding holes or heliotropes. 
You say hell on earth, and I say end of time. The difference is you will stay here, and I will be carried away. You ask, do I know that I have no wings to fly to God? Wax wings melt as we fly to touch the sun. We spiral down, down, down in our hubris. We landed on our humility. Like birds, we navigate by the stars, the sun, and the Earth's magnetic field. We mimic a hummingbird, 600 miles nonstop. But we forget to sing, and we drop. Some, like swifts, spend an entire life in flight, going from one achievement to the next, feeding in the air, nesting in the air, mating in the air, until a drilling rig, a windmill, a power station, or a bird of prey takes us down. And the wings we have are too long to take off from a flat surface, so we rarely land, and when we do, we find that no matter how swift, these are not the wings to fly to God. I'm going to pause that right now so people can hear the multi-era references and all that. It is so rich, and you'll hear a little bit more, as I said, as we close. You say, hell on earth, I say end of time. It's riveting. I still got goosebumps from when I first heard that. I started out with the idea of the rapture and um, the, you know, the, the head-on climate change versus this religious idea that we, we, there's an Earth 2.0, that we can just leave, that it's okay because everyone's going to be lifted away. And so there's, there, there's some very serious beliefs that are butting up against um, the ability for people to accept what is happening to our planet right now. And I think it's really important to think about these beliefs and take them head on and, and really work through them. Because like I said, we can, we can put in policies, we can talk about facts, we can talk about stats, but as an anthropologist who's worked on religion for, you know, over 30 years, I think that it's really important to, and it's the same way. It was the same with COVID and vaccines and, we really have to look at people's belief systems and how those come to head with some of this, right? Right. And it's kind of percolating in more discussions, partly because it's this guy's getting a media blitz. I've seen it all over the place, even on uh, independent book platforms. It's this McCaskill's long-termism tome that I think it talks past you in his windy way, what you are bringing up in such tight poetry. And I'm looking at how um, that might this be a sort of a, gee, I, I'm trying to think if I put this, these are yours or my word. This might this be the weak messianic power with which each generation is endowed, <laughs> sped up by the distortions that oligarchic excess brings. So I'm thinking you you bring up Noah's Ark, but he's... In McCaskill's long-termism, he's got Noah's Ark for just the uber-rich. Never mind everybody else. You're you're bringing everybody yeah. along with you. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think your birds is an antidote to the kind of oxygen that McCaskill's mm. long-termism is sucking out of the public discourse. Yeah, I talk about the billionaire men who build wings to fly away from which they have destroyed. <laughs> but money in the end is not going to save us, right? So, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, yeah. Well, and, and you, in preparation for this, you had a look at, at that, 
the shorter version of the tome. So I don't know if you had anything more to say that, or he just he springs your traps that you've uh, set in the in provoking people to think with urgency. Yeah, and I think I mean that's not a new idea, right? It's not a new idea at all. But I think what's important is that, and you were talking about navel gazing. I think it's important while we're having this conversation, to think about the other conversations that are happening around it and not to just ignore those. You were talking in the earlier segment about debate and, you know, equal, you know, equal, what is it, narratives maybe, right? Right. Um, I, I think it's important to bring that narrative in and address it head on, things about the rapture, ideas about flying away. Again, whether it's the billionaires who are going to fly away and they're amazing, you know, whatever they are, rockets, or, or whether it's, you know, the rapture, this idea of being able to just, you know, destroy things and, and then take off. And I don't, I don't know how much that essay really talks about the present. I think it's important to think about the future, but I think we really, and I think that's why I use a lot out of the idea of the writing of the disaster. And I love that work because it talks about how the disaster is right now. And we're thinking so far in advance all the time. And right now, we're destroying things right now in this moment, right? And we have such short-term memory. Even with COVID, we, we were hoping, at least some of us were, that things would change, that a, a massive pandemic on this scale would cause homo sapiens to do things differently. And, and it hasn't. Everyone wants to get back to life as is. And... All of the things that we learned about what we were doing to the planet, for example, by taking a breather for a couple of minutes there, it, it's like it didn't happen. You know, we're, we're, we're flying around again. We are driving around again. We, we, it, we, we, us, us, I, I, you know, it's just gone back to that. So I think it's important to bring all of the narratives in somehow, and that's what I tried to do. Amen. Yeah. I, I, want, <laughs> I want to make an introduction to, are you familiar with Terry Tempest Williams' work? Yes. So she was on this show when her book Erosion came out. She was with us. She gave me a whole hour. It was really cool. And <laughs> uh, and this remember her title. And then when women were birds, it's one of her works, and it's a work that's entered on one of those must top ten lists that someone was tweeting out about important centering reads. And I'm thinking of Erosion. Her work and your work, I think the two of you will be deadly in colliding with your insightful, incisive creative powers as and women. There's no there's no accident. These are women speaking to this. So I just I'm planning that project. Now I'm not giving you more work. I'm just making your work amplify with her work. She's got quite a following too. So and I think she needs to know about you if she hasn't already. So I'll I'll see what I can do with her agent there. So for those of you who just joined us, my guest is Roxanne Barzi, UCI professor, writer, artist, filmmaker, anthropologist. We're talking about her bird's creative process. There's also Salt and Sublime. I mentioned in the introduction. It's about the, uh, and in there, it's about the urbanization decaying the soul of Gaia. And Salt and Sublime is also, it's immediate. It's, it's right down here in the state, in the southern part of California. And it continues to decline, suspending more and more toxic materials, as well as it's a 
very an area of interest for mining lithium for all those batteries we need to do so we can s turn off the fossil fuel. So that is happening. You're addressing that in the Salt and Sublime. You said if you're in Berlin, you can see some of this. But tell us a little bit about what you're doing with that project. Well, that project also um, came out at the Angels Gate Community Art Center in, I can't remember what year it was before, the pandemic. And it was actually... And it, it was also an Ornhot Gallery. The Ornhot Gallery commissioned it after my Whole World Blind Soundwalk show. And it was commissioned, they just commissioned me to do a sound project. They, wow. that, was, that was the only prompt. And so I really wanted to do something on the Salton Sea. And I love the idea of capturing the crunch of all the dead fish underfoot and really making a sound project, spoken word again about the Salton Sea and the problems down there. And... What happened was it was just so stunningly beautiful. You, you look at it and you have no sense of the toxicity unless you know what's going on there, right? And you're actually down there and you can smell it and experience it and see the dead fish beneath your feet. But if you're just looking at pictures of it, it's stunning. It's sublime. That's exactly so my again, experience seeing yeah, that so, with the yeah, film that you shared. It's just, it's an odd, odd sort of paradox. It is. And so that's why I ended up leaving the video in there. <laughs> so I emailed the gallery and I said, and I do this a lot in my work. I think my data is going to take a certain form and then it ends up taking another form that suits it better. That's um, going to make it more actionable, more consumable, you know, easier to digest or, or, or not. Maybe it'll make it more provocative. But in this case, I thought it was really important to leave the visual in there and I emailed them and I said, I'm really sorry, you can separate the sound out of this if you want to put it, because they have this megaphone system, then they have a gallery inside in Berlin. And they said, no, no, this is great. We'll install it as a video installation. So they did that. And then I think they separated the sound and put it on the megaphone outside. And then when I put it up at Angel's Gate, it was also put up as a video. So it's just one of those situations where, again, I think as an anthropologist, it's really important for me to let the data take its own form. For me, everything is grounded in narrative and in that kind of research, but it needs to come out in a form that best suits it. And with the Salton Sea, there's no way that you can talk about what's happening down there without showing the beauty of the place and bringing in this idea of this religious experience, the spiritual experience of the sublime. Because the sublime is about both terror, right, and fear, and also um, having this spiritual awe. And, and I think the Salton Sea does that. I think it's terrifying what's happening down there, but it also just really elicits a sense of awe in its natural, you know, being. <laughs> Not the part where the humans destroyed it. Right. And the levee broke and, you know, all of that. And so I can't... I can't bring that piece. We're we're going to go back to birds at the end, as I keep promising here. But a particular line captured among the many really tight and beautiful lines in Salt and Sublime. It's the dying center as much as the circumference. Mm -hmm. You said it all there. <laughs> it's it's just remarkable. I love, I love poetry. I love writing poetry because... I, I find a lot of academic jargon really difficult, but I find, and I know people have a hard time with poetry, but I think it gets to things in a way that's way more powerful. So the last question, 
I don't know. I have a habit of bringing really the um, whoppers at the end with there's with precious <laughs> little time here. The feedback. What kind of impact do you think are you getting from your peers, whether it's UCI right here or is it and with mm-hmm. anthropologists, ethnographers, people outside of your discipline? What kind of impact, Roxanne, do you think you're already making? You've got to be. Yeah, I think um, I think the impact is um, putting it in different spaces. So almost all of this work has been in both um, the American Anthropological Association meetings, um, and I won't get into all of that because it's a minute and a half. So in, in, in that sense, I feel like I'm moving the field and moving with the field as the field and some really cutting-edge folks in the field are moving more toward multimodal work. And then I think, you know, just being outside, I've had some incredible moments interacting with people at art shows. It's a very different venue. And to bring this in and, you know, even at Angel's Gate a couple of months ago, people sat down and listened to the loop just over and over again. And we're we're really moved and wanted to talk about it. And the first one, Whole World Blind on War, same situation. And and I elicit stories that way as well. So it's also like this double ethnography and that I get to listen to, you know, people's interaction with it and how they feel about it and and what it's doing for them. And that's really exciting. And you don't get that as an academic. You write a book, it goes out there, sometimes you teach it, sometimes you get to, you know, sit in on colloquiums and classes and hear student feedback. But there's something more immediate about this well, that's yeah. very exciting. Thank you, Roxanne. I'm going to race here to say, I'm going to have you put your passport on your top drawer. I want you to go to the School of Engineering. I want you to go to Humanities <laughs> Corps. I want you to deliver yeah. this. And all, and the Earth System Science people, they're waiting for the call. They're waiting for that email. So there are <laughs> platforms right here where people just aren't thinking big enough picture. They're pretty siloed. And that's the... That's I would the, love that. So yeah. I, I would like to do it. Well, thank you for your time and amazing Thank the you, heck Claudia. out of my of my brain and, and the brains out there. And thanks for the impact. Thank you, Claudia. My guest was Roxanne Barzi, UCI professor and writer, artist, filmmaker, and anthropologist talking about the creative process like no. We're going to go out with more of the birds until until my show has to end. Our mistake was to take a round ball for a flat surface or a flat surface for a round ball revolving toy we call home but nothing more we labor under the illusion that if we provide ourselves with all we need that we can live in this place and take from this place and just sorry to talk over her little arabia is specially designated community that's going to be on tonight's anaheim city council agenda this is my wrap next week my guest will be alex Armlovich with an interesting study on empty nesters trapped in single-family huts and the annual UCI Mind Alzheimer's Conference. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And happy Ukrainian Flag Day, August 24th. We want to replicate birds. We want to fly. But we do not want to grow our own wings. We rely on mechanical contraptions and aerodynamics. Billionaire men built wings to fly away from that which they have destroyed. But not all the money in the world can buy them wings to fly to God.